Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey everybody, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is Brendan David. And before we get to Brendan, here's a few announcements. First, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there, you can see photos of our guests, you can see stories that some of them have written, you can see stories that I've written, you can see links to their social media, and you can see links to our social media, which is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. There are also links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts, and we are on Spotify and iHeartRadio, basically everywhere you get your podcasts. So, If you listen to us on any of those platforms, I ask you, as always, to please give us a good rating because that helps more people find the show and it boosts our presence there and it costs you nothing and it's a cool thing for you to do. So if you do that, I would appreciate it. Also, if you think you'd be right for the show or maybe you know somebody you'd be right for the show or you just want to reach out to me and ask me some travel questions or just say nice things, my email is TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of reaching out through email, our guest today reached out to me through email. Brendan David is his name. He's written a book called The Murmur and the Echo about his years living at the turn of the century, and by that I mean the 21st century, in Japan. He was a kid born and raised in the American South. He was born in Louisiana and grew up around Dallas and somehow had this obsession with Japan. Learned Japanese in high school, which is a cool thing because, hey, did your high school offer Japanese? Mine sure didn't. And after studying it in college, he took off right after college to go teach English in Japan. And as you can imagine, he was a fish out of water and learned a whole lot in a couple of years. So we talk pretty much all about Japan. Turns out he lives right here in Long Beach, which is not too far from me, uh, just south of LA. As you can imagine, he had some good travel tales about his time in Japan. And if you want to hear more about them and read about them in detail, you can get his book, The Murmur and the Echo, which is available on Amazon. And we have a link to the Amazon site at TravelTalesPodcast.com. His website is MuchoArigato.com. Arigato, by the way, is spelled A-R-I-G-A-T-O. And you can also follow him on Instagram at mucho underscore arigato. So it was a pleasure to meet Brendan. I'm glad he reached out. And I hope you enjoy our little trip to the land of the rising sun. Here's my chat with Brendan David. How does a kid from the deep south in Louisiana and Dallas end up in Japan? You know, it was by happenstance, to be honest. It wasn't through the the normal path of comic books and animation movies. I was uh, killing time in study hall in high school and read an article in one of those free student publications that are just kind of tossed around in the library and whatnot. And it talked about this uh, very well-known uh, automobile manufacturer in America having a failed advertising campaign in Japan. And, you know, when you're that age in high school, you think you know everything and you know, you're smarter than these massive corporations and people with degrees. And I thought to myself in that dusty, you know, room, I thought, well, surely they, they can't be talking to Japanese people the way they talk to American people because 
the cultures are totally different. Mm-hmm. And that just really sparked the uh, the interest. And I didn't really know anything about Japan at all before then. I mean, literally. So, um, and then I got word that um, the school district was offering Japanese for the first time in its history in the coming months. And I was like, you know what? It's a sign. Let me do it. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, it was just been a, a lifelong passion. And this was in high school? Yeah. Wow. You've got Japanese in high school. That's a pretty big, uh, must have been a bit of, pretty big school or something. Yeah, we were just lucky, you know, it was that time where, you know, they were offering Russian and German already and French and all the usual stuff. And then when they said Japanese, my ears perked up. It's probably the equivalent nowadays of of schools offering Mandarin. Yeah. You know, at the time, the Japanese superpower, the economic power was huge. And so oh, I know. decided. I'm, I'm a little older than you that I was like, uh, you know, we're all going to have to learn Japanese. That's what they kept <laughs> telling us. We're all going to have to learn it. And now That's it's right. like, uh, I guess we all got to learn Chinese. That's right. It's uh, it's uncanny how that works out. Yeah. yeah. So did you end up uh, going there? Did you go to college out here or did you go there immediately yeah, after to, to high school? No, I went to college in Texas and um, I got accepted to the JET program after Texas, after graduating from college. And, you know, some of your listeners might know that that's the uh, the Japanese English teaching program that the Japanese government sponsors. Okay. So it's a pretty competitive program to get into and I was thrilled to get accepted. And, you know, for, if you don't know much about it, it's, you can think of it a little bit like Peace Corps, you know, like you, you, you meet people that are in Peace Corps and they're like, Oh, I had no idea where I was going to be stationed. They just put me in this, this country, you know, somewhere in the world. It's the same kind of approach for Japan. You know, if you get accepted, they're like, okay, great. We're just going to place you anywhere in the country where we think we need to place you. And so it's just a bit of a luck of the draw. And, um, so that was that. They they told me where I was going to be. And of course, I had never heard of it. And of course, I didn't know anything about it. There was nothing on the internet about it. There were no videos, no nothing. So yeah, it was quite an adventure from day one. So you weren't going to Tokyo. You were going to some place you'd never heard of. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, the, the, the cliche is that those of us that get accepted to the program, our number one rec- our number one preference is put me in Tokyo or put me in Kyoto or put me right. in those, you know, those famous big cities. And they're like, yeah, that's that's nice. And they just kind of put you wherever. And, <laughs> and so you're always kind of crestfallen because people talk about, you know, I didn't even know that this prefecture or the equivalent of a state in America. Yeah. I didn't even know this, this even existed. And here I am stationed way out here in the middle of the mountains somewhere. So, yeah, it's interesting where you where you can find yourself. So what was the name of your uh, city, your prefecture and how far away from Tokyo was it? Well, I got super lucky. I was in Chiba Prefecture. And that is this, that's the prefecture right next to Tokyo. So it's the, one of the most easternmost prefectures in the country. And I was stationed in a little village at the time. The village was called Yokai Chiba, but it's since had uh, changed its name because it joined forces with other surrounding villages to become a, a quote unquote city or a town, which is now called Sosa, S-O-S-A, Sosa city. And so, you know, I had the, I got lucky. I had the best of both worlds, you know, being a foreigner in a in a new land and a new culture, getting the the purity of living the day to day slow life country life, but having the the ability to use like the ripcord to get out to the city a couple hours away on the express train to just mm-hmm. go experience you know the the big life of of Tokyo whatever that entailed for a given weekend. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it wasn't quite. It was a little farther than a suburb, but it was you know just close enough. It was like living in. Uh, I don't know, Palm Springs or something. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. Exactly. With less in between. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Yeah, you just had to commit to it. You couldn't do it every weekend because it was cost prohibitive and the time 
was a bit of a time suck because out there in the countryside, you just got the slow trains. So it's a bit of a grind. It's like taking the Greyhound bus more oh. or less, <laughs> you right. know, you're just slow and old. And, but, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the adventure, right? You know, when you're living and traveling and, and new places, you know, that's for the locals, you know, that was one of the most common questions I got when I meet people in the bigger cities, They're like, well, where do you live? I tell them and they, and they would just kind of pause and look at me really close and go, why do you live out there? Like, what is out there? <laughs> and, and for me as the foreigner, I was like, oh, it's great. You know, it's, it's the countryside. And meanwhile, they're going, this, this, this American, this poor American's lost his mind. He's going to be bored out of his mind out there. Is the uh, position, is it, I assume it's paid, but I mean, do they give you room and board or do they, how does that work? Yeah, the, the way that they structure the program is there's two general ways. One is the prefecture will pay you; they'll be your your boss, or the uh, the school district, like the city, will. And and it's always a case by case. You know, for me, I got a little bit of a subsidy on my housing, and I got a salary, which was cool. And I paid into the social system, so that was my first experience with you know pay, you know being in a, in a socialist type of structure um, with healthcare and whatnot. And then other people I know that were even more remote than me, they got a, a full house with no rent in the forest. You know, people mm. just had very different experiences. And um, I guess that was the the trade-off being so isolated from everybody else. Some people got beautiful old two-story houses with no rent. And people like me lived next to a soy sauce factory in a, in a small-time cement factory. But, you yeah. know, it was, it was great for me. It was good living for me, you know. Yeah. So at this point, you're what, about 21, 22 years old? Yeah, right around there. Yeah, when you're, you're dumb enough to think you know everything. Yeah. You know, how about how long is the commitment when you agree to do it? Is it a year? Is it how long is it? Yeah, it's a minimum of a year. And then the, the people have the option to renew or the government can uh, say that they don't want to, they don't want to renew, you know, so it can do, when I was there, you could do maximum of three years and then you had to go, you had to go back to your home country. Then they changed it to five years, I believe. And then at the time, it was just a one and done. You know, you did your contract and you could never do the job again. And then they opened it up to allow people to apply to go back and do the job a second time. And this was long after I had uh, finished the program. But uh, so it was cool to see that they're evolving with the times and and trying to meet the demand of the folks that wanted to continue living in the culture and learning and, and doing their thing. And how long were you living there total? Total two years. Two years. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you show up out of college. You're this guy from Texas in, mm-hmm. in this uh, small town, well, smaller town in uh, in Japan. Needless to say, you're going to stand out. Uh, everywhere. You know, I mean, you stand out everywhere in Tokyo, but even that, I mean, you see some diversity there. But mm-hmm. I got to imagine where you were. Uh, it was probably no other non-Japanese. Is it Gaijin? What's gaijin, the, uh, exactly. Gaijin. Yeah, right. not, yep. not many gaijin where you were, probably. Not at all. Not at all. You know, a six foot tall blonde kid from America. Yeah. Giant then, belt buckle, big 10 gallon hat. <laughs> you know, tie up the horse over to uh-huh. a local, local store. Spurs uh, a jingling. I, I'd get those questions from the kids I'd see in town. They're like, oh, do you have a horse? You know, or have right. you ever seen a cowboy? You know, cute kids just asking curious questions because they never got a chance to interact with any foreigners, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, I was the one, the one shot that they had, but, um, yeah, you know, you stand out, you know, and it's, it's, it's fine if you're an outgoing person, I'm a fairly outgoing person, but it can start to wear on you. And I, I gotta say, it's a great life experience to have, to, to always know that you're always being watched. Yeah. Cause you know, 
growing up in growing up in the South, you know, you can kind of be anonymous, or most places in America, you can kind of be anonymous depending on where you go or um, what what part of town you go to or what you're into, and you can just kind of blend in, especially if you're from the bigger cities. But mm-hmm. out there in the slow life, and to your point, sticking out, it's uh, it's good, but it's challenging at times because sometimes you just want to be left alone, and other times. Yeah, you know, you can you can deal with it, but yeah, you know, I guess that's all part of the growth of of traveling or or living somewhere else. So, were you there? This was the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, deception so, twentieth century, post post nine eleven. Yes, <laughs> actually, nine eleven happened a couple months into me living there. Actually, oh, wow. Yeah, that was an interesting experience for sure. It's you know everybody's got their story of where they were, especially if they're American. Mm-hmm. You know where they were what happened, you know, what they had for breakfast that day. And it was, it was no different for me in terms of just that kind of being etched in the mind for sure. What, uh, what was the Japanese reaction in general? It, I mean, I know the world was pretty shocked, but, uh, were people coming up to you and saying, Oh, I'm so sorry. And absolutely. And that was surprising to me. Cause I thought, you know, I view the world through American eyeballs and I was a young 20 something. So my assumption was, well, they're probably not going to care much about this because it's, you know, right. 9,000 miles away in New York City. And um, almost right away when I was walking up the hill to go to work, you know, kids would, would stop me and ask me if I was okay or ask me if my family was help okay. And there was like genuine concern. And I remember, I remember this one student, he was a great student, and um, he stopped me in the hallway between classes. And, uh, you know, he has a little uniform on and and he was like, hey, excuse me, Mr. Brendan. And he, he, he really always wanted to practice his English with me. So, you know, I'd always make the time for, for those kids that wanted to, to give, give it a chance. And, you know, he, he got teary-eyed. He almost, you know, got, oh. cried. And I was like, wow, it's amazing how um, compassionate people are when you, when you think, oh, no, they're not going to care so much. And it was, um, it was very eye-opening. It was, it, was, it was really great, actually. Everyone was very inquisitive, making sure I was okay. You sure you don't have any family over there? No, I don't. Mm. It's okay. It's very far away from where I'm from. (laughs) So it was, uh, it was, it was a very, um, unique experience for sure. Well, I've only been once to Japan one trip and it was like 10 days and I went to, uh, Tokyo and Kyoto. Didn't get a chance to see much else, Mm -hmm. but I loved it. And that was my first, I was supposed to go back, uh, of April, March, April of 2020, and we all know what happened there. Mm-hmm. So, yep. and I still haven't been back. And it's only now, I think, starting to open up a little to uh, to tourists again. Um, but they locked down hard. Oh but, yeah. I mean, and what I do remember, though, there are those. I went solo there, you know. So there were those lost in translation moments where you just find yourself kind of like just wandering around <laughs> like yeah. Tokyo, the streets. I was just kind of like, because I always tell people, it's a very American thing for people to just a stranger to just come up to you and say, so fellow, where are you from? You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of cultures. They just don't do that. They just kind of stay with themselves. Mm-hmm. And it, to talk to a stranger out of nowhere is like not their jam. You know what I mean? So not it was at all. hard to meet people. You know, and and strike up, a, you know, to go places alone. You just find yourself the language barrier is tough enough, but you just find yourself alone a lot. Did you find that as well? 
Yeah, it's interesting you had that experience because that's that's very much the experience that most people that have lived in Japan have, unless they live in like as an expat in a, in a large city. Yeah, uh, yeah, you feel very isolated most of the time, and it's not because the Japanese people are mean or cruel or insensitive. It's nothing that. It's just that first and foremost, they're a very reserved culture, just mm-hmm. generally speaking, right? Very reserved, very respectful, and they they give people their privacy. And yeah, like you experienced on your trip there. Absolutely. I mean, you just feel like you're alone on an island. Well, I guess you literally are on an island, but you know, it's a. Uh, but but I think y- you and other people that have traveled there or lived there know that it's just the little things that that compile. Like the streets aren't laid out in a grid format. Mm-hmm. Uh, navigating the train stations is tough. Finding restaurants is difficult. Translating you know where you want to go and how to order food and and we all deal with that everywhere we travel but there you know you don't like to your point you don't normally have somebody go hey you look like a traveler that might i might could use some help let me yeah <laughs> let me help you out like it just doesn't it just doesn't happen yeah and i think that's um i think you're not alone there i think a lot of people have experienced that and also just the wandering around you know because it's such a as you experience tokyo is such a gigantic city yeah and, and you know, unless you got a plan you can find yourself just burning hours just wandering around which isn't bad right it's part of the adventure yeah but, i mean it's uh, fascinating but it's a lot of sensory overload you know oh yeah big time very safe but still sensory yeah. overload yeah the uh well the last episode we had was with uh jonathan leg and he had lived there for a few years in tokyo and mm-hmm. he had mentioned how and i told him i had read something about expats over there and this is true in a lot of cultures that no matter how long you're there and he's he kind of backed this up he said no matter how long you live there you could be there for 20 years speak perfect japanese but you'll never not be one of them you'll always be an outsider you know there's still you never get Mm -hmm. the feeling that you're totally accepted you know and like you said not in a hostile way but you know, it's still after 20 years of living there, somebody you'll go, oh, your husband uses chopsticks so well, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like you're an ape, you know, you're like this, uh, you know, simpleton who's just, oh, look at you. Good for you mm-hmm. getting around. He's like, yeah, I've been here t- 20 years like, mm-hmm. and it's you'll true. never be fully accepted. No matter how yeah. hard you tried, you ain't going to be Japanese. You know exactly. It's it's true, and I think you know. I think a lot of us wrestle with that when we're over there. You know, those of us that really want to learn the culture and do our best and and experience as much as we can and be a good representative of our home countries wherever we happen to be from. And yeah, sometimes you just feel like you can't get through, and it's not because of people being mean or it's a mean culture. It's actually quite the opposite. But I think that. I don't know. What I came to realize, at least to myself, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, I just think that when you have such a homogenous culture over there that doesn't have a ton of outside influence in terms of habits, manners, cultural norms, it's very Japanese. Everyone's yeah. very Japanese. So there's this subtext, this unspoken uh, choreography that happens throughout the culture every single day where people don't have to communicate certain things because everybody just kind of knows Mm-hmm. And as foreigners, we, we try to do all these things to, to assimilate, you know, especially us Americans are like, well, you know, if we try hard enough, we'll, we'll, we'll make progress and we'll be accepted. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, to your point, we're never going to be fully Japanese. You know, and <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, some people have a hard time with that. And other people are like, well, you know, it is what it is. You know, right. you just kind of got to roll with the punches sometimes, you know. The other thing I found tough too, is just like, even though they have to learn English in the schools, that uh, a lot of them, 
well, first you say a lot of them, I guess, forget it as soon as they pass the test, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as they mm-hmm. graduate, they kind of let their skills go. But mm-hmm. even if they do speak it pretty you know, decently to me, uh, they're ashamed that it's not better. They're, and they're constantly apologizing. It's like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. My English isn't good. And I'm begging like, no, it's great. Please, somebody talk to me. You're doing fine. <laughs> exactly. Please, somebody. And they're embarrassed well, to use it because they, they're ashamed that it's not better, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of shyness. And it's interesting how much people understand. Even the people, just the random people on the trains, they may not reach out and strike up a conversation with you. But if you started speaking basic English, most people would get m- some of what you're saying, which is surprising to some folks. And there's a, there's a guy I knew when I lived there, a Canadian guy, a guy named Tim, great guy. I learned a lot from him. Even at a young age, he was always a lot more, he's a lot wiser than I was. He was from Toronto and he, you know, had a very multicultural background living there. So he had a bit of a leg up on the rest of us that are just, you know, plopped down in these countryside areas. And he said, you know, and he'd been there a little bit longer than I had. And he said, you know what, Brendan, what I have come to learn is that English is taught like a subject in Japan as opposed to a communication tool. And he's like, I think that's why people are shy and have a a tough time using it in public with strangers because they fundamentally weren't taught it in a way that is like natural, how people just would use the, the tool to communicate. And I don't think that's unique to Japan. I think that's probably a curse of most curriculums around the world in terms of learning a foreign language. You mean like a lot of memorization and just like words and, but not really usage. Yeah. Like syntax and like vocabulary that you'll never use and situations Mm. you might never find yourself in as a normal person. And then when they're faced with the foreigner in this unique situation, they're like, well, what do I even say? Which I've been in their shoes a million times. I've been all over the world and I found myself in those situations as a foreigner thinking, how do I communicate with this person? I feel kind of silly. I, I'm, and I, I get that way too. I get so embarrassed. Like if I try to, to use some, some French and Tahiti or something like that, just to do basic things, I, I just felt so embarrassed. And yeah. I'm like, Oh, I get it. Now I know like how some of those folks felt when I was living in the, in the deep countryside out there, but it's, it's true. It's, um, you know, and I think, and you, you know, it's like anybody who actually immerses himself in a foreign country and, or, challenges themselves to learn a very different language, they know how hard it is and how intimidating mm-hmm. it could be. And I, I have respect for those folks that no matter how broken somebody's English is or how broken their whatever language is, they got the guts to try hats off. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, like you, like you were saying, talk to me more. No, 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 you're good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's communicate. Well, give me your uh, biggest mistake you made First off, Pat, when you look back now, you just cringe. What what was one major mistake you made when you got there? Um, I think it was <laughs> I think it was my Americanness, if that's if that's a word. I, I think <laughs> it was you know, being outgoing and you know, you know how we are as Americans. We're 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 socialized, we're brought up to think that our opinions matter about everything. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, we all have to tell you about what we think about whatever. And especially at that age, too, I found myself just making these declarative statements and giving my opinion in the most inopportune moments, whether it was, um, you know, the first car ride when I met my supervisor, when he picked me up, or uh, in meetings with my new colleagues who were all Japanese, or uh, when people were hosting me at dinner at their home, 
you know, I didn't realize how opinionated we Americans can be for just no reason. Yeah. And, and just, and when nobody and asked the, for yeah, our opinion, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, you're in the social situations, even at home where you're talking to somebody and you make this declarative statement and they look at you and they know, you know, that they're listening to you and they hear you, but they don't respond. And then in that moment, you hear the echo of what you just said reverberate in your own head. And you're like, well, that sounded kind of dumb. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> there was a lot of that. There was a lot of people just looking at me and me going, can I just shut my mouth for once and just pay attention and like try to learn a little bit? So there was a lot of, a lot of those. And I think one of the more humorous situations I had was, um, uh, and this one's in, I've got a, a second book following up coming out in uh, January, February of this coming year. But one of the anecdotes I have in there is, um, and I won't give too much away, but, um, you know, I managed to go to a social event in the village. One of the elder guys invited me and, you know, I didn't screw anything up. I was so proud of myself. I, you know, had a great dinner with all of his old school, 70 something year old buddies in the town. And, you know, it was this big end of year party and it was really cold. And I was like, okay, they dropped me off, you know, cause they're really big on designated drivers there, which is so impressive. Like mm -hmm. nobody drinks and drives. They really frown upon it. So they always have, shuttle systems set up and designated drivers like true designated drivers and so they got me home okay and i was like you know i was walking you know from the car i was like oh i did it you know you know i did a great job i didn't embarrass him i didn't embarrass myself which is a big feat for me at that time mm. and and i woke up the next morning with that panic you know for anybody that drinks booze has always has has some point in their life at that time where they wake up the next day and say I don't know what I did last night, but I'm already embarrassed. I must have said something or done something that was terrible. And you kind of start to, you know, filter through the fog in your mind, trying to wonder what you did. And I'm sitting there in the ice cold, you know, didn't have heat or AC in this, in this tiny thin walled apartment. So I could like see my breath and laying on the futon. And I kind of jumped up in a bolt of panic. And I remembered that I had puked out all the sake and sushi from the night before on the front doorstep of my neighbor. Oh, so I'm, I sprint downstairs, I run out and I look down to hope that I'm not remembering it. I'm hoping that, you know, that didn't happen. It was a bad dream. And there it was in all its glory. And it had all frozen overnight. And so it looked like one of those gag, gag gift vomit things that you like throw in the chair that your buddy, your buddy's about Aww. to sit on, you know, and I'm out there frantically with kitchen utensils trying to scrape stuff up before he wakes up and. No one ever said anything, but I have to know my neighbors knew because they all watched me, you know, and I was like, oh, man, this is so embarrassing. And luckily, he never said anything to me. He was a nice guy. But, you know, things like that where you're just like, oh, man, like just now I look back and I laugh at it. But at the time, it's just mortifying, I was like, <laughs> you know, but there's all kinds of little situations like that that, you know, you just find yourself in and you learn from. How about anything like, uh, you know, getting on the wrong train for about 20 miles or... Uh Oh yeah. Going into the <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Did you did you do that when you were in Japan? Did you make that mistake too? Uh, it took me a little while. I mean, the, the train system, I, I got a pretty good grasp of it after a few days, but I mean it's it's intimidating, you know. I mean, if it's hard the saving grace is thank God if you're gonna speak another language, it's English because they'll give the announcements in Japanese and then in English, not Spanish. Oh, they not Italian oh, or anything like that, but they, uh, if there was any other language written or spoken other than Japanese, it was English. So that's a relief, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so that you could always get an English um, guide or a map or something because uh, that helped a lot. 
That's a good point. In the bigger cities, absolutely. And it's smart, right? You want your tour, you want yeah. tourists visiting your country to have a good experience and to tell their friends and family and and have a good, you know, just a good experience of their culture. It's it's good that they're doing that more now. I know that when I lived there, that didn't exist. So all the train announcements were all in Japanese and all the yeah. signs were all in Japanese. And I always thought, man, how do tourists do it that, here? Exactly. Because, I mean, you're, you're in France. I mean, if it's written in French, I mean, still Roman lettering. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. what ristorante means in, in Italy. <laughs> but in... Um, Japan, yeah, it's just a bunch of shapes. I don't know what that sign says. It could say restaurant. It could say bank. I don't know, you know anything. So that's really hard. That's and the other thing hard to get used to was like the um, what you call it. The um, not everything is on the ground floor. At least in Tokyo, mm-hmm. like most most businesses that appeal to uh, people on the street or customers or the general public in America are all in the on street level. Yeah. There, I mean, you get to, in Tokyo, you get like, okay, the restaurant says it's this address, but that restaurant could be on the eighth floor, mm-hmm. or that bar, the little bar is on thirteenth floor, and you're like, I have no idea why was the bar way up there because they don't have any room at the bottom. That's why, you know, it's just that's, like that. That was weird to get used to. That's a great observation that you had, Mike, because I don't <laughs> think a lot of people pick up on that. Um, and it took me a while to catch on to that too, because I thought, you know, well, if it's not on ground level, then surely it's a, you know, blah restaurant or it's yeah. a terrible bar. Or I got it wrong. To, or it's like, maybe I yeah. just, I could have swore this is the address, but where is it? And you're looking around everywhere and you're like, oh no, that's, and you realize, I mean, I'm sure it said it on the side of the building, but I couldn't read it. Couldn't read it. Exactly. And then you, <laughs> all it takes is a couple of times riding up in those tiny elevators that fit about two or three Westerners. Yeah. It's like a little phone book. I mean, a phone book booth. And then you come up to this magical bar on to your point on the eighth floor of some yeah. random looking office building. You're like, what? Like what, what is it? Like, I had so many situations like that where to your point, you're like triple checking your address and you're like, this has got to be the place, but what am I not getting? I've got, I've got a funny yeah. story about that. So years later, after I had left the country, I was doing a lot of international business and, and I found myself in Japan working with clients over there for a while. And I remember one time I had, you know, done all of our presentations and had all of our client meetings. I had a night to myself. And there was an area of Tokyo that I hadn't been to really. Actually, I maybe had never been to it when I lived in Japan and, and it was kind of a little hipster area. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go there. It's an off night. What the heck? You know, I'm tired. I'll grab a bite to eat, maybe grab a drink or whatever. And I, I reminded myself to your point, I'm like, you know what? Get your eyes off the ground, look up and see if there's anything interesting. Mm-hmm. And I found myself walking up four flights of outdoor stairs to this bar and startled the owner because there was no one in there. And this random foreigner walks in and, you know, we had a great night and he, he looks at me and I, I, I show me the, the, the menu and I was reading the Japanese and I was like, I must not be reading this correctly, but I was like, you know, what is a, what is a gin buck? I've never heard of that kind of gin drink before. What is that? Am I reading that right? He's like, yeah, it's a gin buck. I was like, what is that? And he's like, it's um, gin and ginger beer over ice. I was like, well, that sounds kind of, kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I might give it a shot. And he goes, well, you know, do you, how much ginger do you like? And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. I guess I like it a lot, but I don't know how much is a lot. And then he kind of gives me this mischievous look. And have you ever seen those like display sake bottles that are like the super jumbo? They're like three foot high bottles of sake like, yeah, in Japanese yeah. restaurants. So he had one of those where he had like steamed the labels off, you know, so it was just like this nondescript bottle. 
and he he grabs it by the neck from behind the bar and can kind of hoist it up behind the bar. And it looks like this giant jug of cloudy urine. Uh. And I look at him and I look at that and he goes, homemade batch of ginger beer. And he's like, it's really strong. And I was like, okay. And he poured me one and I had a couple and it was a great night. But, you know, if I wouldn't have taken my eyes off the street level, to your point, and actually <laughs> had a little bit of adventure and gone up to those random floors in the random building, you know, you, you miss out on a lot of those great experiences, especially in Japan. How big? I, like, I'm six feet tall and I, I felt like a giant there. How big are you? I don't know. Like, you taller? I'm six feet as well. And okay. I stood out like crazy. It's interesting. Yeah. I was talking to somebody here locally. She's a. A Japanese American, and she actually did the same program. And she and I were, were chatting, and we're reminiscing. And she's she's tall, um, for I think she's maybe like five eleven, five ten. Oh wow, yeah. And I said, uh, I said, and, she, and she's she's Japanese, looks Japanese, has a Japanese name. And I said, did you have a hard time with the the door jams in your apartment when you lived there? And she just started laughing. And I was like, how many times did you smack your forehead on the door jam <laughs> just walking into the other room in the morning? She's like, oh my gosh like countless times i'm like yeah and then you just get used to hunching over because yeah we're taller you know yeah. <laughs> and you just gotta try to squeeze in where you can without trying to bump into something or knock something over which is totally common i did that countless times too but yeah yeah you yeah. stand out for sure and the crazy thing i mean they have gotten taller over the years the last you know 20 30 oh, years yeah. because their diet has changed you know they've gotten more western more meat more dairy and that kind of stuff uh so they have gotten bigger them and the south koreans have gotten taller Mm-hmm. and just bigger yeah, in general so it's not as crazy i mean it, i think it was worse in vietnam i mean mm. i really felt like i felt like godzilla walking around vietnam it was nuts and people aren't being rude but when someone stands out like that they people can't just they can't help but double take it's just yeah. human nature right they just they just look because they're curious like oh wow that's a tall person or that person's hair color is totally different or did you do uh, the thing where you would see like Another white person in a restaurant walk in, and you have to give each other the nod, like, "Hey, I see you." Oh yeah, you I see always got to do the nod. Or when another you one gets on the bus, the you're like, "All right, we got to acknowledge that anything yeah. goes down. I guess we got to stick together, huh?" Gotta- that's right, and then that's that's when I I realized too, to your point, how ethnocentric we can be just as people, because I yeah. was like, "Oh, there's another oh, another Westerner or foreigner. Uh, surely they're from America." And I just yeah. go start talking English and they're like, uh, I don't speak such good English. I'm from, you know, I'm from France or I'm from Germany or right. <laughs> whatever. And I'm like, oh man, I got to get in. So that, that was a great educational moment for me at those times when I made those mistakes that I need to clarify if people could speak English, you know, because like, I, you know, like I just assume being from the South, I'd say, Hey, I see a black guy, a black guy. Hey, what's up? And they might be Nigerian. Yeah. You know? And they're like, their English is good, but they're, they're not American. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm in Japan. I'm not back in the States, you know? And where everybody is just, you know, can just spark up a conversation and have the same, right? you know, type of background. Well, it was funny because I, I was meeting a friend of a friend in Tokyo when I was there and he, he is a, he had been living there for a few years mm. and uh, he said, well, we'll meet uh, this one night. And I was by the big major, one of the biggest train stops in the, I think it's at the Shinjuku station or something. Massive. Oh yeah. It's a big station. It's the one with the dog statue, the famous dog Oh yeah, that's a statue. Shibuya station. Yeah. yeah, Hachiko, the statue. Yep. And uh, so we'll meet under that dog statue. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like there's going to be thousands of people there. How am I going to find you? He goes, "Oh, you'll find me. You'll see me." <laughs> and he he was the one black guy, you know. And it was like, and sure enough, he comes walking up. I would go, "Hey!" And he goes, "Hey!" <laughs> and sure enough, that was him. It's like you're right. I did see you. <laughs> yeah, it's like he knew. He's like, trust yeah, me. He's like, you'll see right. me. 
there's hundreds of people meeting there at any given time. Oh yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. That's why I, I mean, was like, there's no sense. way, there's no way I'm going to find it. He's like, you'll find me. And sure He's enough, like, I did. I had a situation like that too. Back in the day, I, I was, you know, convinced that I needed to network extra hard when I was there. I was like, okay, you know, I got to get this international career going after this program. So I'm going to network as much as I can in Tokyo and meet as many people as I can. I got, you know, met this guy and he was an ex, he was an alumni of the same program. And he had gotten a job in Tokyo after he'd moved back, he moved back to America and then moved back to Tokyo to work as a professional in the ad world. And I was like, oh man, this guy's like the Sasquatch. Like it's such a rare occurrence. Like I want to do his path. I got to meet this guy. And so people connected me to him and he was just a sweet guy, great guy. And um, it was the same situation. You know, he's, you know, we didn't have social media or anything. So he could, he didn't know what I looked like. And I didn't have a cell phone because uh, I was fresh off the boat. So mm. um, he goes, don't worry, just go to that, go to that corner. It'll be fine. You'll, you'll see me. And just like your experience, he had been there for a while. As soon as I walked up, he just flashed this big smile. And I'm like, okay, you're the guy. He's like, yeah, here I am. Let's yeah. go. And it's, uh, it, <laughs> That's funny. So I've got a question for you, if you right. don't mind. Go ahead. So, you know, you spent some time there, right? You, you didn't just do a long weekend. You spent some time there. Yeah, it was like 10 long. days. It's pretty good. You know, most people I talk to are there for like five or so. And they leave. What, what, were, what were some of the big takeaways for you? What did, what did you experience as a traveler over there? Just absorbing it all, just, you know, on the go. Um, my thoughts were, I mean, I loved it. I mean, Mm. now I love the food, so that helps a lot. Oh yeah. Um, but I just loved that for such, especially in Tokyo for such a massive city. I mean, one of the biggest cities in the world, probably over 20 million people. Mm -hmm. It was still one of the cleanest cities I've been to. It's super safe. You know, they're all in it together. You know, they follow the rules because they know if they didn't, it would be chaos. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, and, Mm -hmm. um, I liked that part about it. Yes, it's not as they don't really favor the individual, whereas we're all about the individual. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, they are about the collective, as long as you're <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, it, but it's that it's that kind of thing. I did love that. And it's such an old culture. You know, I found that very interesting. And it do, did also make me wish we had high speed trains and bullet trains. That oh, yeah. That was great. That's a great experience. How you went from Tokyo to Kyoto on the bullet train? Yeah. That's a great experience. Everybody should do that once. Oh, it was great. It was great. It was expensive at the time. I mean, the, the country's expensive. It I don't is. Know how the very. costs have come now. But, you know, and there was also that when you were talking about a homogenous culture, you know, they aren't the more homogenous a culture, the less really kind of like the more awkward moments of like, Still seeing like little black Sambo dolls in the in the stores there and just make you go, mm-hmm. ooh, you cringe a little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Yeah. When you don't have to look over your shoulder when you tell a joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As I say, that's kind of thing. With, I was made fun of the Australians in my act for that. They kind of have the same kind of thing going. It's just like, well, there's a reason they're not politically correct. Which is the thing you love about them, but also a thing that makes you go, "Oh yeah, they don't have to be politically correct because it's pretty damn homogenous." Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know, once you get like, out of uh, Sydney and Melbourne, it is you know, Whitey McWhiterson out there. You know. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and you know, to your point about some of those interesting cultural phenomenons, I remember multiple times. So I had recently I met somebody that was 
Japanese here in Los Angeles, and they had been living in the States for a long time. And they said, hey, have you actually ever seen a no foreigners allowed sign or a Japanese only sign in Japan? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he was just shocked. He was dumbfounded. He's like, no way. Are you serious? He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. You know, you, you walk down enough back alleys and you go through enough areas, you see those signs. Um, and they're shocking the first time you see them and you think, whoa. But then to your point, if it's a super homogenous culture, how many foreigners are actually seeing those signs? Yeah. Probably not many. You know, so it's, it's just interesting phenomenon where you kind of go, wow, all right, well. That's different, you know. That's that's yeah. not like back home. I know Jonathan had said he, he, you know, we saw some of those out, but that was more out in the country, out in the sticks. You, mm-hmm. know, you see more of them, but um, yeah, it's it's yeah. But uh, oh, I went to a baseball game, which I loved. That was a lot of fun. That you know, I was that always dumb. I was always confounded by that because you know, we all oh, America's pastime baseball, which it really isn't really. No, but in Japan, they man, love it. Oh, they love baseball. And it's uncanny. Just the, the fandom is, it's it's cool. I'm like, oh, this was what it must have been like in America back in like the 50s and yeah, the early when, 60s. When people know? cared about like, baseball. Yeah, when people were really excited <laughs> about baseball and they went to the games, and they collected the jerseys and the baseball cards. And nowadays, you know, as we know, it's, you know, American football and, and NBA yeah. here in the States. But yeah, no, it, they it loved is it. interesting. Did you ever go to a game or a sporting event? I wanted to see sumo when I was there, but I didn't get to see it. You know, I didn't, I, <laughs> me too. I wanted to go see Sumo when I was there too, but I never made time for it. I'm like, oh, I'll go next time it's in town. No, oh. I'll go next time it's in town. And then eventually you end up leaving. And the closest I got was just seeing the Sumo guys, you know, walking around in that area um, where they have a lot of the stables and whatnot. And seeing those guys in real life just walking down the street in their summertime kimono. It's impressive, man. Those guys are yeah. big, just big specimens. Just, well, it was, yeah. Well, likewise, like you asked me, I mean, what as an American looking back on your experiences that you can go, you know what? I wish America had a little more of this. And what didn't you like about it? I mean, what, what was the one things that was kind of a drag for you? I think the, um, the thing that I always was really impressed by and whenever I experienced it, I was always thankful. So thankful for, which is there is a true desire to help one another over there. Like if you're part of the social group or you're part of the friend group or you're part of the familial group, like people realize that they're incentivized to help each other out because we're all in it together. Like Mm -hmm. we're all in the culture together. And and whenever I would experience it or observe it, I think, man, America is not like that. Because, you know, here it's like about the, like you said, it's about the individual. And And that's working out great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> God count the ways, right? Yeah, but, where everybody's yeah. getting along, it's all it's all good. Oh yeah, everybody just hand, everybody hand that's uh, singing kumbaya here. That's all. Oh, hugging it out. <laughs> but you, know, you think about it, like as I as I observed that and experienced it over there, I realized that yeah, the best stories that we hear or anecdotes or allegories we hear in America, it's about the person who had nothing and by themselves. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they grinded it out. They did yeah. it alone. And we and we we put a lot of value on those stories as opposed to, oh no, no, we helped each other out because it's our responsibility to look after one another. And I I thought that was really and I know some communities do that here in America, but I'm I'm making very big generalizations for yeah. sure. Um and that was something that was always very um impressive. Um I think the uh the 
the the things that always caught me off guard the most, and it never really made me angry. It would always just trip me up is um, the power of information there in that there's, there's a strategic way that folks will share information within groups and they might choose to share it with certain people and not with others. And it's not because anybody's being malicious or being withholding. It's just that there's a, there's a way to navigate certain situations and it doesn't always mean making sure everyone's on the same page. And as a foreigner, that usually meant that I wasn't on the same page, you know, and, and and again, no one was being mean to me, you know, I wasn't the victim, but it was challenging because I was like, you know, if I just would have known X or Y, I could have done Z and it would have been better for all of us. Um, And those things were were really frustrating because you need to find out about things, you know, as a foreigner, especially like in social groups or friend groups, or even at work, you know, working at a Japanese school with Japanese colleagues, you find out about stuff super last minute and important stuff. And um, I'll give you a great example. Um, uh, in the book, there's a, a story about, uh, I was sitting at my desk and one of my, um, mentors, he's maybe like four or five years older than me. He was assigned to be my mentor in the office. And he goes, you know, Hey, Brendan son, are you going to, are you, you, you want to come say goodbye to, uh, Esagaya sensei? I was like, what? And it was like the middle of the day. I was like, what? Huh? Like, wait, what are you talking about? Like the same guy who just passed away because we had a, a colleague pass away i was like wait huh and he goes yeah yeah they're about to drive his car across the school drive his remains across the school grounds and we're all the school is going to go out and say their goodbyes and i was like i didn't understand what that meant and I, he looked pretty serious and i thought okay let me just put my necktie on and chase after him and go outside to the edge of the school grounds and by the time we got there the whole i don't know thousand meters or 800 meters long driveway that drove up to the school, a uh, little private driveway. Um, the entire student body and teachers were lining either side of this narrow little road in their black school uniforms. And it was completely silent. And I was like, what, what's going on here? And I, and I walk up and I'm, I'm just kind of looking at him with, you know, side eyeing and making sure I'm just watching him to make sure I don't do anything, you know, inappropriate or embarrass anybody. And uh, he goes, he goes, here, I'm coming here to stand next to me. I look down the road and there's all these people and up the road and it's unbelievably quiet. And, uh, you know, the wind's blowing through the bamboo and all of a sudden this quiet hearse comes around and starts to go up. And the Japanese hearses are really interesting because I mean, the car itself looks a little bit different, but on the top, they have these beautiful miniature uh, little shrines that are like gold leaf shrines that are just bright gold on these black waxed cars is really with tinted windows and and as the car slowly idled it up the hill you know like at sporting events when people do the wave you know like an american mm-hmm. sporting event it was the reverse of that as the car came up everyone just started to do their deepest most respectful bow in a wave as the car came up and then it got to us and then we you know did our deepest bow as it went on and the, the car just trailed up or down the hill and then went along its way. And then everybody just turned and walked back into the school. And I was like, Whoa, this was such a surreal experience. And I didn't know anything about it until, you know, 10 seconds before my colleague was like, Hey, let's go down there and go pay our respects. And thank God, if I just would have known ahead of time, you know, I would have been a little bit less stressed out and I could have, maybe, maybe right. I would have done a better job, you know, maybe it was <laughs> fine, but in my head, you know, like, so that's a long, a long answer to your question, but it's um, filled with all those kinds of experiences yeah. that I'm sure everybody has had. No matter where I, they've lived, I tell you though, I do like the bow. 
I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the bow. I think it's like, especially when uh, after COVID, when nobody was shaking hands and doing anything, I said, they, you know, they figured this out a while ago. It's respectful. There's no touching involved. Yeah, I, I like the, the bow. bow as well. I, don't I like the, the bow. bow as well. It's it's really great and to see the varying levels of the bow. You right. know that that is also just awesome to see as well and to try to master the different levels of the bow, which we don't do a good job of as foreigners. But you know, sometimes we get it and, and you know improve it a little bit. Did you see? I'm curious when you were. I don't know if you noticed when you were on the train platforms. You know, going wherever you were going. Did you see the people that would? do their equivalent of saying excuse me walking through crowds and they'd put their hand in front of them like a fin uh, and they kind of they kind of bob their head did you ever notice that no i didn't know that it's it's it, to me it's like a variation of it's not a bow but it's like a similar kind of gesture where i'm not touching you i'm not even saying anything but it's my polite way so they'll they'll hug their arm in close to their chest and they'll put their hand like a like a shark fin or a karate chop or something mm-hmm. out in front of them like a little wedge to get through people and they kind of do like a little slight bow head bob or whatever and everybody knows what it means and everybody does it it's all cool and you're able to get through dense crowds very easily <laughs> and to your point like it's great because it's like once once you learn how to do that or learn how to bow it's like wow you know just you start to feel like you fit in even it's even though it's a simple type of gesture whether it's yeah. a good bow or an excuse me motion you feel like oh i'm kind of getting it like all right yeah. like I'm, <laughs> I'm, but I'm, just little things like i remember taking this subway you know i lived in chicago and new york Mm-hmm. took a lot of trains. And I remember these little paper, I think there were advertisements and stuff that would hang from the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. The little, uh, little, yeah. little paper things. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, if this, was, <laughs> if this was in New York, those things would be torn down within like 20 minutes. You know, oh, they wouldn't absolutely. last a second. And these would just hang there. People just walk under them and they, like wouldn't touch them. And they're just kind of like... Oh yeah, and there was no, uh, and it was just clean. There was no trash on the subway, and no. I always tell the story about that was, they made headlines at the last World Cup in Russia, the Japanese fans, uh, because they, they would leave the stadium and they would pick up all their garbage, you know, their food, garbage, and stuff, and throw it away, and the locals and all the other countries were like, "Wow, that's great," and and. So great that you pick up after yourself. And the Japanese were just like, well, why wouldn't you pick up after yourself? Exactly. <laughs> what's, what's wrong with you animals? You know, just like <laughs> they didn't think it was anything special. They're just like, of course, we pick up after ourselves. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. And that's we're all so left true. looking at each other like, oh, yeah, I guess we should, you know. But there's something about us in a sports stadium. And nah, just drop it on the floor. Yeah, yeah it's somebody uh, just, else's job. Yeah, yeah movie theater. Out. Just leave your crap. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I'm, I had forgotten about that. I remember my wife bringing it up. We were sitting on the sofa one night. She's like, "Look at this!" And she looked over at me. And she goes, "This is pretty common Japanese behavior, isn't it?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it is." Like just being respectful <laughs> yeah. of your surroundings and being respectful of each other, and you know, leaving something better than you found it. And there's something there's something about that. There's something that I still am just fascinated by about the positive social ripple effects that it might have. And this might be an extension of it the anecdote you were talking about that, you know, in schools, every day after school, the students clean their own schools. Yeah. So, you know, we'd finish up the last period and teachers, we'd be in their grading papers in our big office. And in the hallways would be, you know, a buzz with students sweeping the hallways. There was a cluster of kids cleaning the bathroom, sweeping up, you know, scrubbing. 
and you, you know, with it's that it's that old adage, you know, many hands make for light work. You know, when you have a a whole student body banding together, they're only cleaning for like what ten minutes max, mm-hmm. and then they're right. done. And but it makes for like a really clean environment, even though some of these schools are very old. But it makes there's like a sense of pride. There's like a mm-hmm. sense of like I mean, no one wants to do chores like that, especially when you're young. But when you're all doing it together, it's like oh, yeah, we're just doing it. And so I wonder if like those people that were cleaning up in the soccer stadium, I wonder if subconsciously they were like, well, this yeah. is what we do. This is like, what we, we do. Just take care of where we are. Like, why, why wouldn't we? And what, just, was, what was the craziest thing you ate? And what's the one thing you missed that you can't get here? Ooh, I think the craziest thing that I ate was, um, well, I'll give you two, two answers. One was I, I knew a local guy, two towns over, and I lived really close to the coast. And so there were these pockets of surf culture folks, uh, locals, and um, it was a local surfer guy, a couple, couple train stops over in a smaller town. And he goes, Hey man, do you want to, uh, he's a Japanese guy. And he's like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to go get some sashimi tonight? And I was like, Oh, that sounds good. Because you know, the average Japanese person doesn't eat sushi or sashimi very often at all. And, and I was like, yeah, you know, I never eat it. And I never go eat sushi or sashimi with any of my coworkers. Um, yeah, let's do it. And he goes, yeah, because this place <laughs> sells illegal whale sashimi. Oh, no. And yeah. I was like, whoa, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, but don't tell anybody because the guy isn't supposed to sell it. Because a lot of the, in that area, a lot of the families had, you know, small time commercial fishing boats. So everybody had access to different kinds of seafood and stuff. And I was like, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And at the time, I didn't know a lot of the controversy about the whaling in, in Japan yeah. and, and that kind of thing. So I had it and it was a very, um, it's very unique for sure. Eating that type yeah. of sashimi. It was, it was it's very, very dense. It, it was a lot of chewing. My jaw was getting sore. Oh boy. And I think on a more, or more upbeat note, um, a family that I had befriended, they actually had a boat and had a little restaurant and they had me over for dinner when I was first getting to know them. And, and the, the patriarch, you know, grandpa, you know, you sit on the floor at the tables of the house, you know, so we're all sitting on the floor cushions and, you know, they were, had this beautiful spread, you know, they're just such Japanese people in general, are just such kind and generous hosts. And these folks were no exception. And, uh, he said, um, Oh, we're going to have a little bit of everything tonight. I said, oh, okay, I don't know what that means, but let's do it. You know, and I was trying to be polite and I was just following everybody's lead and no one spoke English and I was doing my best with my Japanese. And, uh, so he is, I guess, certified or has a license to be able to do uh, puffer fish, fugu. Oh, yeah. So he had sliced up, you know, in the translucent paper thin slices, so he had this big, beautiful platter of fugu. So it was the first time I'd had that, you know, made made my lips numb for like 10, 15 seconds between bites, you know, and I was like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And the next plate of food comes out and I could not identify what it was. And I was like, boy, it's not seafood. You know, I couldn't really put my finger on it. And he kept on saying pig, pig, and another word. And I'm like, what is he saying? And then he started pointing and poking himself on the jowl. And it was pig jowl, which I'd never had before, which is ironic being from mm-hmm. South. Yeah. And um, so that was very unique. And then to wrap, to wrap up the meal, he, it was this is like a spoof from like Saturday Night Live or Mad TV or something. From on the floor where he was on the other side of the table, he pulls out a big red and white striped bucket of Colonel Sanders, Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> and puts it on the edge of the table, and uh, like it was nothing, like it was no big deal. And because uh, there was, a, there was, ironically, there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken in my village, which was so strange to me. I'm like, of all the things that could be in this that are, that are foreign that could be in my town, 
it's Kentucky fried chicken of all places. It was just always perplexing to me. I never yeah. went, but I always rode by it on my bike. And so they had gone there and got the big bucket, the family size bucket, and we had chicken and and puffer fish <laughs> and some and some pig chow. So those were that was definitely uh, some of the definitely one of the weirder things that I had had. Um, I'd never been to a country that didn't eat some kind of fried chicken in some form. You know what oh, I mean? There, so there's good. some version of fried oh. chicken everywhere. Like a lot oh, of people yeah. are not. A lot of countries are not big beef eaters. You know, they don't eat a lot of mm-hmm. beef. Um, so people think, oh, there's McDonald's everywhere. Like, no, that's not true. You know, but uh, KFCs, man, I see those everywhere. I mean, they are. everywhere. It's pretty amazing. But the, everybody uh, likes chicken. Yeah, they do. It's and true. Uh, But tell me about the, uh, we should talk about the book a little bit. When, what made you want to, share it and what made you uh how long did it take and when did it come out well oh thanks man yeah it i had you know back in those days blogs didn't exist so i think blogs technically existed if you were a coder if you were like super right. super computer person which nobody was and nobody could afford the servers and put it online so i would send um little emails to friends and family uh back home outlining, hey, you know, this is what I did, or here's the experience, like a little journal, like a public journal type of thing. And um, as I started writing, I, one of the reasons why I wrote them was because, you know, I, I, my family would come from a working class, humble background, uh, not a lot of world travel other than my grandmother. So I was like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the one guy in the family. I want to share this experience with everybody in case they can't travel. And, and maybe I'll never be able to travel again. Who knows, right? When this job's over, maybe I'm going to go back to America for the rest of my life. And so I, as I started to write these, I realized, you know what? I should keep these, do something with them someday. And I did. I carried around this massive Word file and various full printouts, super thick printouts of all these little notes that I'd send back to people. I was like, I got to do something with this someday. And I didn't know what I, didn't know what I was going to do with it. Um, and I'd always been, I've always enjoyed writing and photography and, and that kind of creativity. And I started reading more memoirs and travel memoirs. And I was like, wow, like the ones that are really good are really good. And then there's the ones that aren't so good. And at least based on my taste. And I was like, interesting. And I'm like, this is tough because, you know, with any memoir, if people that read those types of of books, there's, you know, there's usually the ones that are very gripping that have lots of stories. And you're like, wow, this is cool. Like, I don't even know anything about this culture, but what an adventure. Like, this is great. And then there's other ones that can read a little bit like uh, Dear Diary. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of bored. Even though you want to be interested, you're like, mm. And then I realized how <laughs> tough it was to actually write and actually be compelling. So I was like, all right, I got to get serious about this if I'm going to do this. And so I started coming across more and more books of people that were really doing it very, very well. I'm like, ooh, there's hope for me. If I can just <laughs> crack this code, if I can make these real-life events, if I can craft them in a way that are going to be compelling to any reader – whether they know anything about Japan or not, because that was my that was my big litmus test. I was like, okay, if I can put together this book and these real life stories that absolutely happened in a way that someone who doesn't care about Japan, who's never going to visit Japan, doesn't eat Japanese food, would read it and still go, oh, I got a chuckle out of that, or that was a fun adventure. Mm-hmm. And and so I started, you know, putting it together. And there's a guy; he's a folk singer. His name is uh, Tom Schneider, and he's a bit of a rock on tour, if you will. Like he's got a really dedicated cult fan base. He's kind of like a country folk singer and he's a storyteller. 
So like all of his songs are stories and in between songs at his shows, he tells these long stories about people he's known or stupid stuff that he's done. And he's just, he's really good at it. And a buddy of mine gave me his book years ago. I think it's called something like, uh, I never met a story I didn't like or something like that. It's Tom Schneider. And I love the fact that he wrote his book in a nonlinear fashion. It was a collection of stories, but it didn't feel jumbled necessarily, but it didn't feel like a dear diary either. And I was like, wait a second, what's this guy doing? And so that's, that's the approach that I took with my book. I was like, okay, I love music. I've got, you know, countless playlists that I listen to and I always listen to them on shuffle. And even if I'm listening to an album from a band that I like, I'll listen to it on shuffle to just to be surprised on what song comes next. And so that's the approach that I took. So with my book, I, I realized I, I, I got it right when I was able to have each chapter stand alone. You know, it could be its mm-hmm. own story, its own beginning, middle, and end. You know, I was the common thread, me making mistakes, me learning. And I was able to put it together. And, um, you know, editing is hard. So you cut out a lot of stuff. You need yeah. to think certain things can be good. Then you end up just cutting a lot and putting it on the cutting room floor. But that's how I got to where I am and um, still had plenty of content and even wilder stories for the second book that's going to be coming out. So yeah, so that that's how I got to to put the thing out and finally doing something about it. Were you there for the whole two years straight or did you come back in between like for Christmas or something like that? Or did you stay there the I, whole time? I, I stayed there. The, uh, I came back for a wedding to Colorado. A buddy of mine was getting married. So I okay. came back for that briefly and then um, went back. And so I did all the holidays there alone and um, just you know, just grinding it out. And um, well, I did go to Korea once, which was awesome. Yeah, I was, was going to say, experience. did you use that as a base to to see uh, other parts of Asia? Well, that was the difference between me and my buddy, my buddy Tim that I had referenced that I learned a lot from. His That was his play, That was his mode. When he had free time, he saved his money throughout the work weeks and the months. And when he had free time, he went all over Southeast Asia. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy just, he was, I was like, man, you're like, it's amazing. Like you're going everywhere. And he'd come back you know, a week later with these great stories or he'd have a deep tan or he'd have some really cool pants that he got from Thailand or, or whatever. And I was the opposite where, because I was so focused on air quotes, becoming an international businessman, whatever that meant. Um, I was obsessed with mastering Tokyo. So I spent all my time there. So I mastered the subways. I mastered all the districts, quick shortcuts, get here, get there, good restaurants, good, you know, art galleries, whatever good clubs with, you know, obscure little out of the way clubs for, with the good DJs and stuff. And so <laughs> that's what I did. And, and, and I went to Korea once, which was awesome, but that was the extent of it. And you know, sometimes I think, Oh, what I've had a different experience bouncing around like a lot of people did. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I'd change it because it really exposed me to a lot. Um, but yeah, that was, that was uh, how I handled my, my time well, over there. Well, what happened when the two years were up, you came back. I mean, you said you wanted to, you know, be a businessman over there and stuff. <laughs> what happened to Tokyo? What happened uh, to that businessman's life in Tokyo? Oh man. So at, at the time, um, monster.com was just coming online where you could put out, res- you could put out, you mm-hmm. could apply for jobs. And it's like, Whoa, this is amazing. You know, and Google maps had just come out and we're like, Oh man, this is so cool. And I was like, well, I'll just start scouring these job, this job board and I'll apply for every job that's in a major city anywhere in the world. And I'll just see what comes out of it. And it turned out a guy was hiring for a job based in Los Angeles. And I'd never been to California before. And, um, and it was for working with Japanese clients. 
And uh, he said, I'm going to be in Tokyo in, you know, three weeks. How about you meet there and we'll have a little face-to-face interview. And um, met him out there. And luckily I knew the city so well. When he told me this obscure area, I knew exactly how to get there. He's like, sure you know how to get there? I'm like, I'm good. I know which subway it is. Mm -hmm. And um, it worked out and I got the job. He said, yep, you're the guy. Um, Do you know anybody in LA? And I was like, no. And he goes, "Uh, well, uh, you can sleep on my floor until you find an apartment. And um, I, I, I came to LA and he was, uh, he was an older gentleman. He's probably, shoot, he was he probably should have been retired. Uh, he was working himself pretty hard, but he was probably in his, I don't know, um, mid seventies, maybe or later. And um, uh, he lived in Silver Lake up on the hill and mm-hmm. I didn't know what Silver Lake was, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, great. And he goes, okay. Uh, I got there like on a Thursday. He was like, spend this weekend, find any place to live. And um, that's what I did. Just drove around LA, got a Thomas guide, you know, yeah. people in LA know the Thomas guide. I got a big, those big paper maps, you know, binded maps and mm-hmm. or bound maps and just drove all around and, and found a place to live and, and have been here ever since. And it was interesting that, and this is something I was actually talking about this, this past weekend, actually with a, with a Japanese guy here in, um, in LA that uh, I had never heard of the, Japanese internment camps in America until I met that boss. You'd never heard of him. I never heard of him. We weren't taught that in school where I was raised. Yeah. I was unreal. I was like, wait, what? And he's like, he's like, how do you not know this? And I'm like, and I like history. I'm kind of a geek about history. I find it fascinating. I'm like, how do I not know this? And he's like, you need to do some research. And I was like, (sighs) I think I do. And it turned out I had come to learn later that he was in an internment camp yeah. as a kid. And I was like, oh, whoa. And it was just this clashing of our dark history as America, me coming fresh from Japan, him being Japanese American. Um, right. It was very interesting. So yeah, it was an interesting journey. And I've, I've been in LA ever since. Haven't looked uh, back. See, well, yeah. can't believe that never made it to the Texas curriculum. <laughs> it's interesting. I was telling this gentleman this weekend about that. Yeah, He's like, what? And there was another guy who was um, Japanese-American. And I said, uh, well, we never learned about that. But you learned about the Alamo every day. Exactly. exactly. We learned so much about Texas history. Oh, we just were experts on Texas history. And we just didn't know. You know, we just didn't know any better. And I had friends um, who grew up there. They said they, uh, you know, they learned more about Texas history than all of U.S. history. I mean, they just uh, just like, well, that's, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is, uh, you know, a big argument now. Yeah, of it just is. Like, Wait a minute, who's, uh, what are you teaching? It, 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 it <laughs> it's, is. It's, uh, it's interesting. Know. It's unfortunate. You know, I mean, oh, I've taken way, tours in the South and it's like, they they got a whole different uh, version of the Civil War in their schools than than we did. Mm-hmm. And they don't even call it the Civil War. Uh, that's another whole other story. They, so- uh, I, it's It's weird. It's all, it's pretty weird, but. Well, the saving grace nowadays, which I guess is a blessing and a curse, is that there's so much information out there. So back, yeah. you know, back in those days when we couldn't get access to anything and we just only knew what we were taught, you know, people can be isolated and be taught different stuff. And now we can actually learn and get out there. And even just now that I had learned about at that time, I'd learned about the internment camps. I'd put two and two together and I was like, oh, that's that place in Manzanar when you're driving to Mammoth Mountain up towards Yosemite, yeah. where they have the big, the base, the internment camp there, that's a museum. And I was like, I never would have gone there, stopped there, if I wouldn't have known what it was without him telling me and then yeah. going there and seeing that history and learning and seeing the photos and 
the artifacts and there's a there's a great story and i don't know if it's a if it's a tall tale or not but you know little tokyo in downtown la there's a uh you know they have like the little square there where they got the little restaurants and shops and whatnot and on the perimeter you know they've got you know on the north side and the south side of that little uh, center area, they got, you know, various restaurants and whatnot, you know, like ramen's places and whatnot. And there's a Chinese food place there. And um, we would always have alumni uh, events there, you know, from the program that I did in Japan. So there's a pretty strong global alumni network where we all stay connected and regale each other about the stories of where we lived in some remote area of Japan. Mm-hmm. We'd always go to this Chinese restaurant in downtown LA to meet, have these mixers or get togethers or whatever. And I'm like, why do we like, it's interesting that this is an old, it's an old Chinese restaurant. And like, it's interesting that it's here in little Tokyo. And it's interesting that we always come to this place. And then finally I asked somebody and they'd been, you know, they had done the program that I'd done, but they did it like way back in the nineties. So they were like super old school. They're like, well, there's history to this place. It's like, what, why, what, what's up? And the, the story goes that when families were being rounded up and sent to internment camps and being forced to, to leave their homes, the owners of that restaurant had a couple of warehouses in downtown Los Angeles, this Chinese family. And they agreed to store the, the you know, the armoires, the things from people's homes mm-hmm. there while they were away. And they kept their word and they did it and they, they kept it for the folks. And when people were able to re- try to assimilate back into their normal lives and pick up where they left off, where they were able to get those things that were important to them. It's like, wow, that's a, very interesting history. I hope that it's true. You know, you yeah, never know if it's a yeah. tall tale or if it's been, you know, game of telephone, but it's, um, it's interesting history here. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, I know we got stuff to do and I got to, you know, stuff do to do. Thing. Everybody's got stuff to do, but uh, <laughs> right. I appreciate you doing this. Um, tell people where they can get the book and uh, if they want to follow you on social media and where can people find you? Do you have a website? I do. Uh, mucho arigato.com that's mucho arigato.com and um you can find me on amazon just you could just search for the book murmur and echo under my name brendan david and that's about all the socials i do these days i try to keep it simple spend time outside do some creative projects um and i've got you know the second book coming out here in a couple months and i've got some additional photo books i do some travel photography as well so you'll People will find some photo books on there as well that they can download. And I'll say this for anybody that is interested in reading about this stuff is uh, I'm not doing hardback uh, books. I'm just doing all digital. So all you have to do is just use the Kindle app for free on whatever device that you happen to own, whether it's a Google device or an Apple device, and you can read it digitally. Oh, I appreciate you take. I appreciate you having me today. It was good talking with you. No, you too. And I never even asked you what you did. <laughs> uh, in terms of? Your job. Oh, in real life? Yeah. Oh, day to day. Oh, um, <laughs> I work in enterprise software, so I work okay. for a, a, a large global uh, tech company, all and right. so I'm able to. I've been able to use all these little mistakes that I made in Japan over the years mm-hmm. and pay themselves back by me being just more aware and more observant in these, you know, these international situations. So it's worked out really well for me. And you're still using the Japanese. Yeah, I am. And it's interesting how it, it, it never really goes away. You get rusty, you know, and you feel kind yeah. of clunky. It's like jogging. You know, you stop for a couple of weeks and you start it again. You're like, oh, this feels kind of clunky. And then you get you get back in the in the groove. Uh, I actually happened this, this past week when I was talking to the little gentleman down at the beach. Um, I was He's like, wow, you actually have good pronunciation. You're actually speaking Japanese. He was kind of surprised because I was this white dude, right? Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, it's interesting how I can kind of stick in your brain sometimes. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. I, I love the podcast, and, I, and I, I, I'm I'm excited to to be on with with such other great guests. So I, I appreciate you uh, having no, me. Thank you uh, for reaching out. I appreciate you doing this, man. Sounds good. All right, thanks, Brendan. Bye.